ahead, take your Bibles out. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter seven, verses seven to 11. Matthew chapter seven, verses seven to 11. Pray with me as we dig in. Father, take this time now. As we study your word, this second week of Advent, we wanna be changed by you. We want the Holy Spirit to do a marvelous work in our midst. And so God, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you take this text and you'd sear it into our hearts and minds that we would see just how deeply it's connected to the good news of Advent, of Christ with us. Bless us, Father, as we go about this, and would you be honored and glorified in all we do and say and think. Amen. In the book of Genesis, right back in the first book of the Bible, there is this interesting character who, uh, if you've read Genesis, he's kind of a bit of an annoying character to get to know, and his name is Jacob. Uh, Jacob is a bit of an annoying character because he's one of those guys who he makes all the mistakes in the world, and yet he somehow ends up with the blessing from God. Uh, He's a liar. He's a cheater. He's kind of sneaky about what he does. Uh, And yet, the promise was given to him, and God would not change his promise. You know, this guy's life, Jacob, if you follow him through Genesis, he, he, he really did live this kind of yucky life of lying and cheating, but there was a moment that changed everything for him. And I really think this is the turning point in Jacob's life. You follow him through all these chapters and all these things he's going through, and then one day he's walking, and he he, he pulls apart from the camp he's with, he pulls apart from his family, and he decides to spend the night alone in the fields. And this mysterious man meets him in the field, and they start to wrestle with each other. The story's quite bizarre upon first coming across it in Genesis. And you find that Jacob is wrestling. In Genesis chapter 32, he wrestles with this man all night. And he won't let him go. And the two of them are wrestling. At one point in the wrestling match, Jacob's hip gets broken. And in fact, he walked with a limp after that. But he's wrestling all night. And you're trying to understand what's going on as dawn begins to approach. So that the story goes that Jacob literally is holding and wrestling this man all night long. As the man says, let me go, read the line from Genesis 32, verse 26 to 28 with me. Then he said, let me go. This is the man that Jacob was wrestling. Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said to him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Then the man who he was wrestling said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. This man, as it turns out, was some kind of physical form of God that Jacob was wrestling with all night long. That text in Genesis chapter 32 has been used throughout history to teach on the doctrine and on the topic of prevailing prayer, what it means to wrestle with God and not let go until you receive the blessing. Not let go until God responds with what he called you into that wrestling match with. It's remarkable to me as you study the life of Jacob that that night, that night where he got a broken hip, where he wrestled all night was the turning point in that man's life. He didn't live a perfect life after that. Certainly, some of the same old Jacob comes through in a number of different ways, but he was different. He was marked as someone who wrestled with God and did not let go until he got the blessing. Prevailing prayer. Christians, uh, at the center of the Christian story, is this idea that God's called us into relationship with him. And and you've heard it said, hopefully you've heard it said a number of times from this very pulpit, that before Christianity is religion, it's a relationship. God invites you into this relationship through Jesus Christ. 
Christianity is not just a set of, here's what you must do, here's you know, the things that you must do to please God. It's not just a set of rules like other religions might be, but actually, it's a relationship with the living God. Jesus Christ enters into flesh, paying your debt on the cross for your sin, balancing this relationship between you and God, reconciling you to God. And he says, be in this relationship with me. Enter in. And prayer is one of the primary ways, prevailing prayer, steadfast prayer, is one of the primary ways that we recognize that our Christian faith is primarily a relationship. We persevere in prayer. We don't give up. We keep coming back over and over again. Even when the time gets long, even when it takes a long time for the dawn to break, we wrestle with God. We cling to God. We don't let go of God. We keep holding on. And when God says, what are you asking for? We ask for the blessing and we don't let go. How is your prayer life? It's, it's Advent. And this is the season where we should be reflecting on the things that are most meaningful to us. Before it's the gifts, before it's the shopping, before it's the busyness and the meals and everything else that's going to come along, Advent is a time to slow down. That's what last week's message was on. It's a chance to slow down, enter into the quiet place, and ask the honest questions. How am I doing with the Lord? Am I right with God? Am I genuinely walking in this faith I call Christianity? Or am I just going through the motions, going too quickly through it, and just as busy as everybody else is this season? Advent invites us to slow down. And in our text today, what we see is that God invites us in this relationship to ask those things that we need, those things that we long for. God is not so busy that he's not attentive to the things in your life that are your true needs, both your spiritual needs, your physical needs, every need in your life. God's not too busy for you. So often we have this sense of God that he's too busy for us. Last week we studied Mary's Magnificat, this incredible prayer that Mary prayed. And it was a challenge for every one of us to slow down and pray bold prayers. Today we enter into a passage right in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. Now if you never read the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this is a sermon that Jesus gave. Actually, more than likely, rather than just being one sermon, it was a collection of many of the most highlighted sections of Jesus' sermons that he gave that was organized into one sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. Ethicists today call it the greatest message ever delivered on ethics. Today, modern ethics, non-Christian ethicists look at the Sermon on the Mount and they say it's the greatest teaching on ethics that anyone has ever given in all history. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermon to us of how we ought to live. And we come across this incredible moment right in the midst of it. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, where, where God, Jesus, describes our relationship with the Father and he invites us into prevailing prayer. In no, in, in no confusing terms, just so that we can all understand what he expects of us and what he promises to do. Hear the text with me. Ask, says Jesus, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of one of you, if, he, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If I had to summarize the general sense of this passage in just one phrase, I'd say this. God is a good Father who loves to give good gifts to his children. 
God is a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. And before I even get too far into breaking this this passage apart and looking at all the details of it, can we just pause right there and reflect on that, that statement I just said? God is a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. He's patient with you. He's tender with you. He's gentle with you. For some of us that are going through seasons in this year, or maybe, you know, maybe Advent is kind of a break from reality for you. Maybe it's a chance to get your mind off some of the hardships in your life that's going on. It's very easy to become discontent with your season in life. It's very easy to be striving for what's next, to be getting, desiring to get over the trials that you're in, and to forget that in the midst of whatever you're going through, your God, the God of Scripture, the God who's sovereign over all creation, is tender with you. He's gentle, he's patient. He's long-suffering. We need that. We need to be reminded of that. Let me remind you of a few powerful just verses throughout Scripture. Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. We need to be reminded of these truths. Psalm 103, verse 13 to 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord waits, wants, or waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. I'm digging in here. I'm slowing us down. I think one of the things about this church that I love is that we are a church that is not just about talk, but we're a church about action. We really believe that Jesus is king of kings. We really believe his blood was shed for the atonement of our sins and he bridges the gap between us and God and we really believe that God's called us to be salt and light in the city and around the globe. And so we step into some of the most difficult, dirty, broken places in this city and you do that well. You do that very well. This church showed up just yesterday, got a chance to see Drew and Allie Beecham with a whole team of you guys leading Bread of Life ministry downtown at the Thompson Center. I love seeing the church show up and stepping into difficult places. And we're a church of action. And here's the thing. Sometimes when you're a church of action, I think what can get lost is the reminder that underneath the framework that lives underneath a church that is on mission, that is stepping into broken places, that is really doing it and not just talking about it, underneath that is this tender God who knows your frame, who loves you in Christ Jesus, who's patient with you, and who knows your needs and will provide that which you need. Sometimes we can be so go, 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 and I can drive that train sometimes that I forget to slow us down and look at the reality of a God who's tender with us. This passage has three imperatives. They, they have a bit of a conditional sense to them grammatically, which means it's kind of like saying, if you ask, he will answer. If you seek, he, he, you will find. If you knock, the door will be open to you. They're, they're conditional imperatives in that sense. The first one is ask, and it will be given to you. I love Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't make his teaching so impossible that we couldn't understand what he was saying. Pretty simple sentence, right? Ask, and it will be given to you. You try to complicate things in Christianity. All you gotta do is say it like Jesus said it. Ask. 
The, the image here is of God as a good father, and I, I, I'm a father to three little girls, and I, am a, I try to be as tender as I can with my three little girls, and I love them dearly. And I can't imagine a situation where, where they would need something. I'm trying to think of them. They're hungry, and their tummy's growling, and they need something, but they're walking around in circles in the house, and they wouldn't stop to ask their dad for the thing they need. As a dad who loves his children, of course, if their tummy's grumbling, I'm going to give them some food. I'm going to give them a snack. I might not give them the snack they want, but they might get, they're going to get a bit of food to fill the hole in their stomach. And the point of this passage is this. God, our Heavenly Father, is such a better dad than I am. He is a thousand times better than I am. And if I know how to make sure that my kid's got food in her stomach, you can, you can rest. You can rest assured that your Heavenly Father knows the things you need. And he's going to provide over and abundantly. Ask, and you'll receive. Seek, and you will find. This has the connotation of seeking after truth. It has this connotation of posturing your life towards saying, I'm not content with just knowing the surface level about God. I'm not just content with knowing that God exists. I want to know him. I want my life to be about knowing the God of Scripture, to know all about him. Seek and you will find. You postured your life in such a way that shows that you are seeking the truth about God. You are looking for the answers to the deepest questions you have. You are seeking his will in your life. You long for God. You can rest assured that God will give you that which you're looking for. You will find. There are no, th- this is the wonderful mystery of Christianity. I think it was Augustine who said, <clears throat> Christianity is a a pool of water that's shallow enough for a child to wade into, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And the reality of Christianity is that both the child who's just entering into Christianity and the theologian who's been studying the scriptures and the original languages for 50 years always have more to learn. There's always new things to gather about who God is and in the depth of Christ's love for you. And so seek and don't stop seeking. Keep chasing after God. Jesus says you'll find what you're looking for. And then this third imperative, knock and the door will be opened to you. The language here, by the way, is keep asking, keep, keep knocking, keep seeking. In, in Luke, when Luke tells this exact language, you know, the gospel writers, they share a lot of the same stories. They, in fact, oftentimes they use the exact same language to tell their stories. And so you can find the same scenes in, in Luke and in Matthew. Well, well, when Luke tells this bit of the story of what Jesus said, he adds a short parable that Jesus told before it. Listen to the parable. Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 9. Before Jesus said, knock, and the door will be opened to you, he said in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, the neighbor will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus then says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because, but because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence or your persistence in knocking, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. What color does that add to this story? When you put that together, what Jesus is saying is knock and then stay there and keep knocking. See, here's the thing we don't understand. Sometimes the very thing that God's trying to form in us is the ability to continue knocking. 
He wants to form that faith in you. He wants to teach you and show you that sometimes God's timing simply is not your own. But rather than walk away from the door and assume that the door will not be opened, you stay there and you keep knocking on the door because the promise is the door will be opened. Jesus didn't mince words. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. The second half of this passage, is again, it's quite simple. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? It's interesting how Jesus, when he talks about those who are evil, he doesn't, he doesn't use the first person personal pronoun, we. He doesn't say if we who are evil, he says if you who are evil, that's everyone but Jesus. Meaning if you who are full of sin, who are full of ego, who are full of pride, who are full of impatience, know how to love your children and give them what they need. How much more do you think your father will? One of the things I say to my, my three girls when I tuck them in at night, every night, I say, sweetheart, as I tuck them in each, you know how much I love you? And they'll say, yeah, of course. And I'll say, as much as I love you, you have a heavenly father who loves you so much more than I love you. His love for you is perfect. And what I'm trying to form in them is the truth that all of us need to be reminded of, that this passage gets after right here. Your God is a heavenly father and he loves to give good gifts to his children. And he invites you into persevering prayer steadfast prayer, not turning away when you don't get what you look for right away, but staying there in a relationship with God and continuing to come back. Here's what I'm asking for. Here's what I need. What are you asking for in this season? You know, it's Christmas, right? And, and kids know how to write a good Christmas list. I remember I was, I was going through an old memory book I have in my house and my mom, when I, went, when I went off to college, I think, put this gift, this gift, this memory book together. It had some of my early childhood Christmas lists in it. And I pulled it out this last week. I was reading it with my oldest, Ruthie. And my number one and two, I think I was six years old at this point. Number one was, I'm asking for a Dick Tracy poster. Now, if you, <laughs> you don't know who Dick Tracy is, it was an old movie. But I wanted a, Brooke knows, I wanted a Dick Tracy poster. And then number two was, I wanted a Dick Tracy action figure. And I got both of those things that year. Thank you, Mom. She's in this room right now. God says, ask, and it'll be given to you. But here's what God does. In the process of asking and waiting on God, he refines your motivations. Because God is not just a God who gives foolish gifts to his children when they don't really know what they're asking for. He's got better wisdom than that. And sometime in the process of asking... Some, sometime in the process of waiting and continuing to knock, God first does a work on you that refines what you're asking for to be in alignment with his will. This is a remarkable work of God. In the process of waiting on answers to prayer, God is forming something in you, the asker, that you would not have formed in you if you walked away from the door and stopped knocking. And so I ask you, what are you waiting for? Some of you in this room, when I ask, you know, I regularly, when I, when I meet with you, I ask, what are you praying for in this season? And, and these are the, the types of things I hear just from across the church body. As your pastor, I love you. And, and this is the types of things that my wife and I are praying for you regularly for. Some of you are, are, are single and you're longing to be married. Some of you are married and you're longing for children. Some of you have loved ones that are going through unbelievably difficult circumstances. Some of you have loved ones and family that aren't saved and you have just been praying and you're, you're, you're kind of at a point in life where you're saying, God, <laughs> how long is this gonna take? I've been waiting a long time. Some of you have health, sickness in your life, in your family's life. 
Some of you have trials that are going on in your life. Some of you are just distant. You're living very far away from your family. And there's a loneliness and there's an isolation that's going on. See, the reality of the fallen human condition is that every single one of us goes through life with hardship. It's sin. It's the, it's the reality of the world we live in. There's brokenness. There's unmet longings. And in Christ, what God's inviting us to, and, and just slow it down, church. Please hear this. He is a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children, and he invites us into persevering prayer and we rush through it. We, we give a 30 second prayer and think we did our, our due diligence and the faith is gonna be formed in us. There's so much more that we leave on the table. Now we've got some work to do on this. Now, if we're gonna understand this correctly, I think there's two kind of uh, ways to misread this text. The first way to re- misread this text is to abuse the text, okay? And I'm gonna walk through what I mean by that. Under this category, we have heretical church movements of people that claim that God will always give you that which you ask for. And if you're not getting what you ask for, it means you're not asking with enough faith. That's called the word of faith movement. If ever you see that, that's a a movement within Christianity that says if you're not getting what you're asking for, the issue is with you because you don't have enough faith. That is a heresy. That is not correct, all right? So we're gonna walk through how we don't abuse this text and have Jesus saying what he's not saying. All right, another way to uh, name that is name it, claim it ministry. Name it, claim it is this idea, Jesus wants you to have everything you ever asked for, so you name it, right? I, I, I want a car, I want this car. And if you're not getting it, you just keep naming it until it's claimed and it's yours. That is her- heresy. It's not what Jesus is saying in here. Another way and a much deeper and dangerous way that we abuse this text is we believe texts like these are pie-in-the-sky teachings from Jesus that actually are disconnected from the real world we're living in and the real faith that God's called us to. And so we don't give it the time of day. It's spiritual elitism, but in terms of living practical lives in the city of Chicago, kind of don't have the time to persevere in prayer. That one's far more dangerous. And that one plagues our church a little bit more than the first one, I think, okay? Now, I'm gonna give three caricatures of God right now that I think feed into both of those wrong movements. The abusive way and the way that we think this is pie-in-the-sky teaching. Three ways that we view God incorrectly. And my sense, after being a pastor, is that all of us have kind of shades of these different visions of God. They're incorrect caricatures of God that if we truly believe them, then it will explain why we don't get this passage right. I I, I started by saying this, the big idea of the text, that God is a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. Well, some of us don't really believe that God is a good father. Some of us actually, when we think of God as father, the idea that comes to mind is that of an abusive father. We have this idea that God is actually an abusive father. Now, unfortunately, many in this room had abusive fathers. And if you didn't, I'm so grateful for your upbringing and what you, what, what you were able to have, that you had a good father. And, and when you read this passage, you have a sense, I know what, what a good dad is. I know, I know what it means for a good dad to give good gifts. But I know many of your stories, many in this room, had very abusive fathers, spiritually, physically, sexually, all types of abuse. And And when we have a wrong vision of what a father is, sometimes we can bring that vision into our relationship with God and we can begin to sense that God is an abusive father. Maybe we wouldn't use that language, but really when we think of God as father, we think of God more of a tyrant, more of this, if if you do these things, then I will be pleased with you. But, But the problem with that is we're never doing enough. We're never living up and his rules are always just too far ahead of what we could possibly do. And he's angry with us more often than he's joyful with us. 
Rather than seeing God as someone who's inviting us into gentle, gentle tender relationship, we see a God who's, who's actually angry with us and demanding that we come to him, and he's got his arms crossed, and he doesn't want anything to do with us. I think the God of Christianity is caricaturized that way in the media more often than not. This abusive God that's not gentle, that's not long-suffering, that's not patient. If I can be blunt with you, the God of Islam is, 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 is what this is like. You know, the word father is not used by Muslims. And I mean that very seriously. God is not a father in Islam. Because the God of Islam is a very different God than the Bible. It's not this gentleness, it's not this come in, this, this Abba Father, this, that Jesus cried, that daddy, that, that I love you perspective of being welcomed into a warm embrace. It's a, it's a God of if you do enough, then I'll be pleased with you. If you do it the right way, then I'll be pleased with you. But don't do enough bad because then you'll fall out of love. You'll fall out of grace. And some of us think that's what Christian God is. This is a reorientation season, isn't it? God's not an abusive father. He's a good father. He loves to give good gifts to his kids. And we need to be reminded of this. If you have a vision of God that, that God is an abusive father, or even just a shade of that in your Christianity, then you're gonna be full of shame constantly. And the sense you'll have as a son and daughter of the king is that you can never live up to the standard your father has set for you. You're, you're, you'll never do enough. You'll always be a little out of shape with him. You'll always be a little on his bad side. He is a good father. For those of you that have adopted that view of God, I want to tell you right here, right now, he is a good father. He loves to give good gifts to his children. Some of you don't have a vision of God that's of an abusive father, but you have that of a foolish father. He's a foolish father. The word of faith movement that I described earlier is built on a vision of God that's a foolish father. What's a foolish father? Foolish fathers don't know how to be a parent. They give their kids anything they want. They, they've accumulated no more wisdom than their five-year-old child. And so when their five-year-old child asks for a bag of candy, they don't think twice to give the child a bag of candy. When their five-year-old child asks for the remote control to flip through the channels, they don't think twice to leave their child before a television with a remote control. And so they watch all the TV in the world and they're, they're, the kid's mind is being filled with a thousand terrible images that are going to defile the mind and cause long-term scars that will take a lot of work to get through. But it's because it's a foolish father. The father didn't realize that God gave him more wisdom than the child so that he can say no sometimes, so that he can correct the request, so that rather than giving a bowl of chocolate, he gives a bowl of apples. That's what good dad, dads do. Sometimes you sprinkle a little sugar on the apple because you want to give a little treat. <laughs> but you're a good dad. You're not a fool. You're wise. The word of faith movement is built on this idea that God is a foolish father. And we can read this text and we can mistakenly read into this, Jesus saying, ask anything and it will be given to you. I'm just gonna give you anything you want. And that's to make God a foolish father. He has so much more wisdom than we do. He is wisdom personified. He is wisdom itself. And there are many requests in my life that I have made of God that I look back on the history of my prayer life and I think, well, I'm glad he didn't answer that. <laughs> Because my life would look remarkably different if he answered that prayer that way. If only I had the foresight and the wisdom to know what God had in plan for me when I was asking that prayer back then, I would have prayed it a whole lot differently. James chapter four, verse three says this, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. See, there is a motivation uh, realignment that God wants to form in you in your prayer life. Look, it's not wrong to bring all your requests to God. 
In, in fact, one of, one of my favorite books on prayer is by Richard Foster, uh, who wrote a book on spiritual disciplines. He wrote another book called Prayer, in which he lays out all these different ways to pray. And the very first one, it's called Simple Prayer. Simple Prayer. And, and he starts with Simple Prayer just to say this. Look, don't overcomplicate prayer. Br- bring, bring, bring your heart to him. Share with him what's on your heart. There's, there's nothing wrong with going to God with your heart, but realize that sometimes when God is not answering a prayer directly as you're praying it, maybe your passions are off. And maybe what God's inviting you into is to keep praying so he can do that work of realigning your passions. He's not angry with you when you pray a wrong prayer. He's in the process of inviting you in to shape your heart because he has good responses to your prayers. No prayer ever falls on deaf ears. So keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. He's not a foolish father. He doesn't grant everything you ever ask for. He knows better than that. Thirdly, some of us have a vision of God that he's an absent father. An absent father. Now, here's how this works. In this room, I've gone through three different types of dads. And just about everybody in this room has been touched in some way by this. That's a sad state of affairs. It is a sad state of affairs. Some of us have a vision of God that he's an absent father. Those of you who grew up with an absent father, an absent father is someone who wasn't there. He left. He wasn't there. Or if he was there, he was in the shadows. He wasn't present. He came home from work and he took a nap and you were on your own. He was present, but he wasn't really there. He was in the shadow of the pictures with the family. And that's kind of how you grew up. And some of us see God as this absent father. And if I can be blunt, I think this is the one that most plagues the church. Because when you have an absent father, you learn over time just not to need him. You kind of just figure out, I'm kind of strong on my own. And actually, what can happen with people who have absent fathers is that you develop a strength of your own that's quite formidable. There can actually be quite, there, there's some virtues in developing strength to overcome. That, that is not necessarily all a bad thing. But when that thing that, that strength that you've developed becomes the thing you depend on rather than God, that good thing becomes a bad thing. See, when you have an absent father, you become very strong. You, you know how to get the job done. And that can be, become a, a pride in your life. And when you have that pride in your life and your relationship with God, you don't come to him for anything because you know how to get it all done on your own. God's absent. He's, in, he's too busy. He, he's got more to do. He's, he's, got, he's got wars he's looking out over on the other side of the world. What, what time does he have for you? Absent Father God. God is a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. He's not an abusive father. He's not a foolish father. He's not, he's not an absent father. See, the heart of this passage, and, and one of the reasons we chose this for Advent the story of the incarnation is the most miraculous moment in history that we rush through and we don't take enough time to reflect on. His love for you is that the God who's sovereign over the furthest distant planet in the unknown universe, the one who controls the molecules themselves, entered into a child born in a womb of Mary, born and laid in a manger on a mission for you, Christian. He went to the cross for you, Christian. 
The Father loves you so much that he would not leave you in your own filth. He would not leave you in your own sin. He would not leave you in your own depravity. But he'd come on a rescue mission. He'd sent Christ to the cross to reconcile you back to him so that he could be in relationship with you, so that you could ask, so you could run to him, so you could experience what a good heavenly father's like. Run to him. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Slow down, church. One of the things I'm so grateful for in this church is that we've been praying mightily. You know, I've been a pastor for eight years now and never in the life of this church have I seen a prayer movement growing slowly and steadily like what I see now. It's mid-December. January 1st of this year, 2021, we started praying daily, every day. We prayed on Zoom at 12 o'clock. We've added since then a 6.30 a.m. time slot. And then we pray on Sunday mornings in the back of that hallway. On average, we have over 20 folks who are gathered back there praying on a Sunday morning. And on the phone calls, we have between 15 and 25 folks from across the park. What I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna tell you a little bit of history of revival, okay? Because I need you to understand something. Just about every great revival that I've ever read about, and I am a student of history, I love history, just about every great revival I've ever read about in Christian history was formed on the backs of a few people who gathered to pray. That's how it starts. Ask and you will find. Ask and it will be given to you. Knock and the door will be open. God invites us into prayer. Now look, before I get into revival, this is what I need to understand. God, God loves to answer the prayer for revival. We need revival in the city. Revival is when masses of people, because of a movement of the Spirit of God, come to faith in Jesus at the same time. Cities, nations come to faith in Jesus. Don't believe it's possible? You haven't read history. You just haven't read history. History. You haven't read Chicago's history because it happened here a number of times, in fact. That is what God is constantly doing. Not only have you not read history, but you haven't read the news because that's what's happening in some of the places around the world, particularly Iraq, Iran, and China, and North Korea. Some of the most dangerous, hard places to reach. Revivals are breaking out. This is remarkable. Not only is he a God of revival, but he's a God of small revivals as well. When I share these big stories, it's to motivate us to pray for the things in our life because God loves to respond. Small gatherings. 1727, the Moravian movement. In Hernholt, Germany, the Moravians. A handful of people got together to begin praying regularly under a man named Count Zinzendorf. And they began to pray, and then they began to unite other churches to pray, and they began to have weekly prayer meetings, which turned into daily prayer meetings, which turned into 24-7 prayer movement meetings. A hundred years of unceasing prayer started, started by a handful of folks who got in a room and said, let's take Jesus up on his offer to pray, and let's see what happened. The great Moravian missions movement that sent out untold numbers of missionaries around the globe started because a handful of people said, Jesus said it, let's try it. The great awakening in our own country that took place in American history between the 1730s and 1740s, when what happened in England with the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield then traveled across to America, it was said that almost over 80% of those living in the colonies of America at the time heard the gospel and responded. 80% in the great awakening that took place. Revival is unexplainable. What would happen in those meetings, by the way, George Whitfield would get up and preach When the sermon was over, 10,000 people would be gathered in the field. George Whitfield would come down. They'd start to walk away. And as they were going to the next town, they would find people.
people shaking in trances along the road. They'd ask what had happened. They'd say the Spirit of God was just flowing across this entire place, and people were falling over shaking. And when they'd get up, the gospel would be shared, and they'd have an entire uh, revival of the soul. Does that sound remarkable, miraculous to you? You just got to read the right history books, <laughs> okay? This is how revival happens. This has happened all through history, the Great Awakening, the Great Revival of 1859 that ran through Kentucky, yeah? Same thing. You know how it started? Six men getting in a room and praying. Then they pray. They, said, they invited a few other people. Next week, it was 14 men and women. Then it was 25. Then they outgrew the space, and so they started moving to an office space. Then they outgrew that space until soon there were 10,000 people gathering to pray, One uh, secular journalist made the rounds at noon. They had a 12 o'clock prayer hour during that revival. One journalist was able on horse at that point to get around to 12 of the sites where prayer was happening, and he counted up 6,100 men just on his own horse journey going to see who was praying. Ask and you will receive. See, this is how God moves. In Belgian Congo, this is not just a Western European thing. Belgian Congo, Charles Studd, 1914. Studd wrote, some want to live with the sound of the church bell. This is a great quote, by the way. Memorize this one. Some want to live within the sound of church bells. I want to run a rescue shop within the yard of hell. Oh, that's a man after my own heart. I love that man. He reported on a Congo, in the Congo, a revival that broke out. Why? Because a handful of men and women gathered to pray and actually take Jesus up on his word. 1927, Shanghai. Shanghai, a man named John Sung made it his regular habit to be up at 5 a.m. and pray for up to three hours. He believed prayer was the most important work for the believer. What happened? Same thing that happened in the Great Awakening. He'd start walking to places to go preach. He'd find people that were in trances along the way. The Spirit was getting out ahead of him. This is prayer. This is what God does in prayer. 1949, 1953, the Hebrides Islands in Scotland. Same thing. Two older women, one of them blind, they were sisters. They got a pastor that that liked to pray, and these two women started praying for a revival in a small hut. You can go there today where this revival broke out. Nearly the whole island came to faith in Jesus Christ. The way God works through history is that God's people take Jesus up on his word. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. I want to close this sermon by asking you, what are you asking the Lord for? It's a season of Christmas lists. It's a season of getting gifts. And here we have our Heavenly Father who loves to give such better gifts than we can ever give to each other. What's God doing in your heart right now? What are you longing for? What do you need to see happen in your life? There are real needs that you have. There are tangible needs you have. There are loved ones you have that need the, the power of prayer covering their life. This passage is an invitation from Jesus, and I want to invite you into it as well. And so will you bow your heads with me as we take a moment to pray? And I want to give you just a bit of space right now <clears throat> just to put this into practice. Our good heavenly Father loves to give good gifts to his children. Your requests are not falling on deaf ears. He's not an abusive father or a foolish father or an absent father. What's going on in your life? What are the loved ones in your life? Raise them up to the Lord right now. 
Is there sickness? Is there depression, isolation? Do marriages need healing? The children need saving. Father, we come before you and we love your word. Thank you for this precious gift to us this morning. The promise of scripture that if we ask, we will receive. And if we seek, we'll find. If we knock, the door will be open. God, I pray over the hearts of every person in this room that we would never believe the lie that you are a distant God who does not give good gifts to his children. God, I pray that we would believe the true word of scripture, that you know our needs, you know our frame, you know how frail we are, and you delight in us running to you. Teach us to run to you. Teach us to run to you. Build this prayer movement, God, and that's my prayer right now. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would build this prayer movement so boldly and powerfully that God's people would would not see prayer as a burden and a request that their church is making of them, but they would run to their Father who has open arms and cling to prayer for dear life, would rejoice in prayer and being a part of the movement. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the relationship we have with God through Christ's death on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.